We're in a series, and uh, we're looking at the kingdom and uh, the kingdom of God and focusing in on the Sermon on the Mount. And so today we come to that part of the Sermon on the Mount that out of all of the sermon, probably the most familiar is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it's found in Matthew chapter 6, starting in the ninth verse. So you can go on and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6, verse 9. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is probably uh, the most repeated piece of literature uh, ever. More people have recited the Lord's Prayer than any other uh, literary piece that is out there. But what we want to tell you today is that it really is more than just a literary piece. You see, it's called the Lord's Prayer, where actually the, the, really the better name is to call it the Model Prayer. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, the disciples had seen Jesus praying, and so they wanted him to teach them how to pray. And so they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And then Jesus told them this prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And so it's really more of a model prayer. It was more of a pattern that he said, this is how you are to pray. Let me give you a pattern for how you can structure your prayers. And he gave him what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, it's interesting because Jesus himself could really never have prayed this prayer. Because in the midst of this prayer, it says, Father, forgive us of our debts, forgive us of our sins. And Jesus never sinned. So that really would not be a prayer that he could have prayed in its entirety. So what he's done is he set us up a pattern for us to be able to learn how can we best pray. Now, one thing that we need to understand is that Jesus never intended for this prayer to be a group of words that was to be repeated at, uh, at various events or to be a substitute for our own personal prayers. Now, it's fine for us to be able to say the Lord's Prayer at different events, but, but that's not the purpose of it. The purpose was it was not to be some go-to prayer at a particular event. It was not to be a prayer that when you wake up in the morning, you say, well, I'm going to have my morning prayers. I'll just say the Lord's Prayer and I'll be done with it. It's not to be that at all. This is not a literary piece. It is a life-changing prayer. And so it is to serve as this skeleton in which believers are to take this skeleton, this pattern, and then you are to flesh out your own private prayer of praise and adoration and confession and petition. And Jesus gives us this model. So today I want you to look at this prayer as a model for being able to put together our prayers and our prayer life. So it is a passage that breaks into six petitions. The first three petitions relate to God, and the other three petitions relate to our needs. So we start out with God, and then we go to our needs. So if you've got your Bible, let's read through it real quick, and uh, let's take a look at it, and then we're going to break it down. He says in, uh, in chapter 6, uh, verse 9, he says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, some of your translations stop right there. And then they'll come down and they'll put a footnote. And it says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Some translations have that. Some have as a footnote. We will explain that as we come to the close of our message. So let's take a look at this. 
These, this is how you break down the Lord's Prayer, and this is how we also can use it as a pattern for our own praying. Number one, first of all, is praise for the person of God. Praise for the person of God. The very first word, two words, says, our Father. Now, when Jesus told his disciples, and when he is speaking at the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts out by saying, our Father, he has just blown the minds of all of his listeners. You say, really? Yeah. Because you see, the word that he used is an Aramaic word that means Abba. And Abba Father is a word that means Daddy. It's an affectionate term. It's an intimate term. You start out by saying, either my dear father, my dad, my daddy, that's how you start your prayer. Now, in the Old Testament, you take all 39 books of the Old Testament, the word father, when God being addressed as father, is only used 14 times. And in those 14 times, it's all in a corporate sense. He is the father of the nation of Israel. Never is it this personal, intimate But yet Jesus uses this not only in this prayer, but he uses the same word 17 times just in the Sermon on the Mount. And then it's used in the New Testament over a 100 times. He used to be called Abba, Father. And what that means, there's an intimate and personal connection. You have a creator God who wants to be personally involved in your life. You're not just another name that's lost in this crowd of humanity. You have worth and value to the Father. And so you are to intimately come to him in your prayers and say, Abba, Father. There's an intimate connection between you and God. So already as he starts his prayers, we're praising the person of God. We are so thankful for the fact that there is an intimacy between us and our creator God. But then he says, our Father who is in heaven. So now there's this, uh, this intimate part, but then there's the transcendent part. Our Father who art in heaven. That means that he is sovereign. He reigns over all the universe. He is in heaven. He is our God and our King. So when you begin your prayer, you begin by knowing you've had an intimate connection with God, but yet he is the God who is in heaven. He is sovereign. He is both Father and he is also King. And then it says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. I remember growing up, I never really understood what that meant. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, you know, I've discovered as I've gotten older that um, there were songs I used to listen to and I thought I knew what the words were. And then in today's world, when I can go and read the lyrics... I wasn't even close to what it was. Uh, this happened not too long ago, maybe a couple years ago, with my daughter Lauren. We're riding in the car. We started talking about Duck Dynasty. And so as we're talking about Duck Dynasty, uh, she was talking about the lead song on Duck Dynasty. You know, it was ZZ Top. You know, she wasn't even born when these guys were first singing. And I said, oh, yeah, that ZZ Top song. I, I love it. it the, the Shark Dress Man. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, because because every uh, every woman loves uh, a sharp dressed man, you know, and uh, and she starts talking to me, and she's, oh no 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 no, the the song is this. She says, every girl's crazy about a shotgun man. I said, no no no, it's every girl's crazy about a sharp dressed man. And she goes, no 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 no. She says, she says, every girl's crazy about a shotgun man. This is one of the times as a parent you love Google, you know. I said, Google it. He says, okay. 
you're right. <laughs> and then she starts dying laughing. She says, I can't believe. She says, I guess I tied it into Duck Dynasty. It'd be a shotgun man. Well, I thought about that because I remember the story about a second grader who came to Sunday school and he's sitting in Sunday school and his teacher goes around and says, you know, in the Bible, it says God has different names. Can anybody name different names of God? Some little boy raises his hand and says, Lord, that's good. Another boy raises his hand. He says, Jehovah. She says, oh, that's great. Another boy over here raises his hand. He says, Howard. She says, Howard, where did you get that? He says, Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, Howard be your name. <laughs> and I felt like that child because I didn't know what hallowed meant. And, but this was the first petition that we get. We get these three petitions. All right, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is our first petition. Hallowed, what it means is to set apart as holy, to treat as holy, to reverence your name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Reverence is your name. Holy is your name. And when you look at the word name, name means character. So it says your character is holy. You are to be set apart, and so you are to be revered. You praise the person of God. He is Abba Father. He's our dad. He is in heaven. He is also our sovereign king. We are to hallow his name. We are to reverence his name. He is to be set apart. And you see, you cannot pray this prayer. You can't pray, hallowed be your name, without dedicating yourself to him. Because you need to live a life that reflects his fatherhood and reverences him. You cannot sit there and say, oh, let's just do this Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be their name. If you're going to say that, if you're saying your name is holy, you are holy, you are set apart, you are to be revered, then guess what? You and I, we need to live our lives that way. You know, it's interesting, athletic teams used to love to do this prayer. You ever see, they got things where athletic teams, they'll come before the game and they'll get together and they'll say the Lord's Prayer and then they'll go out and coaches and players and they'll take God's name in vain for over three hours. So what's up with this? Either pray it or don't pray it. If you're gonna pray the prayer, you better live out the prayer. And how, how can you sit there and say, oh, our Father... Your name be hallowed, you be reverenced, and then go out into an athletic endeavor and then just use his name in vain. Can't do that. You see, this is why this is not just a piece of literature. It is a prayer that is life-changing. And if we will take our prayers and mold them around this skeleton, this pattern that we've got, but then keep in mind every aspect of this prayer because we need to live out what we pray and it would change our lives. Are you ready? Second of all is the plan of God. We've seen the person of God. Now all of a sudden we have the plan of God and we have two more petitions about the plan of God. He says, your kingdom come. This is the second petition. Your kingdom come. Now when he says your kingdom come, he's talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God in our lives. And we've talked about this since we began this whole series about what does it mean, the kingdom of God. It is the reign and rule of God in our lives. And so when you think about your kingdom come, you can see it really in three dimensions. First of all, it's God's rule in you. God's rule in you. When you pray and say, your kingdom come, you're saying, God, I want you to bring me into an obedient conformity to your will. I want my will to bend to your will. Your kingdom come. You need to come right now in my life. It's God's rule in you. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, we talked about it when we baptized these five individuals up here. 
And that is that all of us are sinners and we've been separated from God. And so if we want to have this relationship with God, we look to his son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, and we ask him to come into our hearts. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is right here, right now. So if we want the kingdom of God in our life, what it means is we need to start with repenting. Repent of our sin. I know I've messed up. I want to head in a different direction, Lord. And I want to live for you. And that's where the, the, the second part of that is you repent, but then you also, there is a commitment. There's a commitment. Your kingdom come. God, I repent of my sin. I want to live for you and I want to be committed to you. Luke 9, 62 says that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. So it means there's a continuation. There's a commitment of that life. And then you are to pursue it with everything you have. Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So there I'll repent. I continue in that life. I pursue it. So when I pray and I structure my prayers, your kingdom come. I'm saying, God, let your let you reign and rule in my life. But second part is it's God's rule through you. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, Lord. I'm not just praying that it'll come into my life, but I'm saying it would come into all this world. In fact, I'm praying, Lord, it would come into everyone who I have contact with. So it's God's rule through you. You live that life. You practice the ethics that are talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And we live those things out. And as we live those things out, we began to impact the relationships in our family. We began to impact our relationships in our business. We impact the relationships in our school. We impact the relationships in our business. We impact the relationships on our athletic teams. All of these things, Lord, rule through me. Rule through me. Your kingdom come. I want to be salt and light. I want to be the one, Lord, that your reign and rule goes through me and touches and impacts the lives of other people. I want to be able to elevate society through you. Your kingdom come. God's rule in your life. God's rule through you. And last of all, is God's ultimate rule. Whenever you pray, Lord, your kingdom come, you know what you're praying? God, come back now. Hasten your return. The Bible says that after Jesus uh, had been resurrected from the dead, and as he was here for a number of weeks talking uh, to uh, disciples and appearing before over 500 people, he ascended to heaven, and they said, one day Jesus is coming back again. And when he comes back again, he's coming back uh, as the ruler and as the king. And so we're praying for that to happen. God's ultimate rule of this world. Your kingdom come. May it rule in me, may it rule through me, and I pray for your ultimate rule. So in our prayers, when we're putting together our prayers, be praying for that, saying, God, hasten the day. Let me be prepared for when that day comes about. So your kingdom come. Then your next is your will be done. The third petition is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. God, do whatever is necessary to make your will prevail in my life. If you're praying this, then you need to make every effort to know God's will. Just think about how you're praying this. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. So what is God's will? What does it say about God's will? In Romans 12, 2, it says God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. How about that? Good, pleasing, and perfect. Lord, I want to know what your will is. 
And I want your will to prevail in my life. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So as I'm praying, I'm saying, I want to be sold out to you. I want to know what your will is. So guess what we're supposed to do? Put some feet to our prayers and begin looking for what God's will is. Reading God's scripture, being open to what he says to us. Take advantage of different opportunities to go places, see things. What is it, God, that you want me to do? Your will be done. Now, I love this. I'd never, ever thought about it until I was doing research this week on it, where it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I love that some, some of the translators have looked at that, and I really like this. It talks about the attitude of God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how is God's will being done in heaven? Just put yourself for just a moment. You're transported to heaven right now, okay? And you're really enjoying it. You're having a great time. And, and you're there in heaven, and you're enjoying it. And all of a sudden, God says, this is my will to do this. How are you going to respond to that? You're up in heaven. What are you going to do? You're going to respond to it eagerly. You're going to be cheerful. You're going to be excited about it and say, God, yes, this is what we want to do. Your will on earth as it is in heaven. That means that whenever I'm praying and saying, God, show me what your will is, whenever God begins to disclose your will, I want to accept that eagerly, cheerfully, and excited as if I was in heaven receiving his will. Because God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's no different in heaven than he is right here. And he loves you as much here as he will when you're in heaven. And what his desire is, I've got a will for you that is good and is perfect and is pleasing. So when we began to pray this, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when I seek after your will, I'm going to be excited and eager. And what's so scary for these long-term Christians is that we get so nervous about God's will because we've heard all the horror stories that we think, oh, God's going to call me to deepest, darkest, whatever, and everything he's going to call me to is going to be bad. That's just so opposite of who God is. He may call you to some challenging situations, but when he calls you to that, you're going to be up for it. It's going to be through his power. And we should be glad. We should be eager. We should be cheerful. And as parents, we talk to our children and say, I want you to be seeking God's will. We need to let them know this is something exciting. This is what you were created for. And we should be excited about whatever it is that God has for you and for that next step. So we have these three petitions about God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus moves into three petitions for us, for our own needs. You start with God first, and then you move to ourselves. The first one is provisions. Provisions. Pray for provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day. Now, did any of your translations say, give us this week? Did any of them say, give us this year? What does your say? It says, give us this what? Day. And when it says, give us this day, what do you take from that? You need it for today? All right, so if I say, if I say uh, give us this day, our daily bread, how often should I be praying? Every day. Now, if Jesus had said, give us this week, what would we have thought then? Pick you one day a week, it's going to be your prayer day. I like Tuesday. We'll pray on Tuesday. That'll be it. But he didn't. He says, give us this day, our daily bread. So automatically, when we take a look at this prayer, we begin to look at our prayers, it presupposes that we're going to pray every day. 
because there is a daily dependence on God. You cannot eat enough in one sitting, though I can eat a bunch, but I can't eat enough in one sitting that's going to last me for a whole week. I should eat enough food on Sunday to be able to carry me to Monday so I can eat in Monday, which will carry me to Tuesday. It's the same thing with God's grace. We can't sit there and just say, well, I'm going to pray and I believe I'm going to get all the grace I need for this next week. He's got this incredible storehouse of grace that every day we need to come and we need to talk to him. And every day we must draw upon this boundless store of grace because we need it every single day. Now, see, for some of you, this message right here, out of everything that we've said, this will be the thing that resonates with you. Because you said, Danny, and I've got to be real honest with you, I'm kind of on the week-to-week plan. Well, I'd like for you to move to the day-to-day plan, and it will change your life. So if you get nothing else out of this sermon, as you walk out this door and you say, you know what, I was kind of week-to-week, try the day-to-day plan, okay? Do the 30-day test and see every day and see if that does not make a difference in your life. And he says that we are to be praying uh, for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, bread during that day was a necessity. Bread was with every meal. Bread was what you needed to live on. So what it means is that we are to pray for everything necessary for the preservation of this life. He didn't say pray for your luxuries. He said pray for your necessities. He didn't say pray for dessert. He said pray for bread. And so it's sustenance that we need to keep on going. And the more I thought on this verse and the more it just seems as I was praying through this and God just seemed to be opening my eyes to some things. When he says, um, you know, give us this day our daily bread, it is necessities such as maybe food, shelter, health. I can pray for all of those things. But when I look at bread, bread meant sustenance. And when we go through tough times in our life, We really need his sustenance. We need his grace. We need his strength through troubling times. We need his strength through exhausting times. We need his strength through those questioning times. When he says, give us this day our daily bread. God, I just need you just to make it through another day. You know, sometimes it's just I need you, God, so I can know how to put one foot in front of the other. I need you, God, so I just can get out of bed to start this next day because this is a rough season of my life. Give us this day our daily bread. God, I'm not asking you to give me enough to make it through the week. I'm saying just get me through the day. And you know what, God? Kind of speaks to our spirit and says, you know, that's good because I'm going to be here with you and I'm going to take you a step of the way. All right? And we're going to make it through the day. And when tomorrow comes and we start this journey together, I'm going to help you make it through the rest of that day. Give us this day our daily bread. I go back to the very first thing, Abba Father. If you've got a wonderful, loving relationship with an incredible heavenly father, you don't want to just do, get with him once a week. You want to be with him every single day. And when you get with him every day, you come to him and say, Lord, meet my needs today. I need this. Keep in mind, you just prayed, thy will be done on earth. So Lord, in the context of your will being done on earth as it is in heaven, please meet the needs you know that I have today. Daily bread. It means comfortable when you bring just small requests, the ordinary things of life. You know, you just bring the ordinary things of life to God and pray to him. 
Remember, he's your heavenly father. This is what dads do. This is what dads do. You know, as a dad, there is nothing better than for someone to bring something to you and you can figure it out and help them. There's not many things we can figure out, guys, but when they bring something, when a child asks a request and you can meet that request, no matter how small it is, you love it. You know why? Because we're dads. We're wired as dads. And we've got a heavenly father that says, just bring all your requests to me. Even the most ordinary things, just bring these to me. Give us this day our daily bread, okay? Then, next is personal relationships. The fifth petition is personal relationships. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts. This is not financial. This does not mean, oh, Lord, I just got my chase card. Please forgive my debts uh, over here. It's not that. It's talking about the debt of sin that we owe God. Because we've sinned against him, we have a debt of sin and we deserve to be punished. And so every man stands before God and he is spiritually bankrupt. When we looked at the Beatitudes, the very first Beatitude was blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That meant bankrupt in spirit. For they shall see the kingdom of God. We have to come to him that way and say, God, I am bankrupt spiritually. I have sinned against you. I have a debt that I cannot pay. Only your son, Jesus, can pay that debt. And so we come to him and we ask him to forgive us of our sins. And we ask him to take those sins and push them as far as the east is from the west, to throw them into a sea of forgetfulness. And and our God says he will do that. But when you look at the Lord's prayer, he's also saying when you pattern your prayers, you better be thinking not only do you want God to forgive your sins, but you better take some inventory as to how well you're doing in forgiving others' sins. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, as we have forgiven. Let me tell you what literally this verse means. It means forgive us our sins in proportion as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive us our sins in proportion as we forgive those who sinned against us. And out of all of the Lord's prayer, Jesus does not build on any part of it except the forgiveness. And he comes right down to verses 14 and 15 and look what he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It means you will not experience the fullness of God's forgiveness towards you unless you extend that same forgiveness to those who have wronged you. Wow. So how do you handle this? Best thing I know is to build a bigger frame of reference. You just need to build a bigger frame of reference. And what I mean by building a bigger frame of reference is when someone has wronged you and you're going to hold bitterness in your heart, you need to begin to build that bigger frame of reference. And in that bigger frame of reference, you look at your sins compared to your relationship with God. And I look and I say, I have a heavenly father who has forgiven a multitude of my sins. And he did it by sending his own son to die on a cross for me. He loved me so much that he sent his own son to die on the cross for me. And he's forgiven this multitudes of sins for me. And yet this person over here really got me chapped about two and a half years ago. And I just can't forgive him. Build a bigger frame of reference. And you say, you know what? If God can forgive me of all these sins, I need to turn around and forgive this person. 
Jesus comes back and he says in this, you forgive us, that God will forgive you your sins in proportion as you forgive those who have sinned against you. I need to imitate this verse. And that is, Lord, you forgive me of my sins. I'm going to be a forgiver myself and I'm going to go and forgive others of their sins. If you hold bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, then the Lord's prayer is a very dangerous prayer for you because what you're asking God to do is not to forgive your sins. Lord, forgive me my sins in proportion to the way I forgive others. Well, you're not forgiving others, Danny, so I guess you're asking me not to forgive your sins. It's a dangerous prayer. But as we're pattering and putting together our prayer, let it call to attention as we're beginning to pray and say, oh, God, I know I've messed up in so many areas. I want you to forgive me my sins. That should cause us to stop and say, okay, God, where in my heart have I got unforgiveness? Where in my heart am I holding back from forgiving someone else? And then let me get to that point to where I forgive them. Then I'm coming back to God and asking for his forgiveness. All right? The very last thing is protection. It is protection. The third petition, we've petitioned about provisions, about personal relationships, and then you come and it's protection. And it says, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you can read all kind of commentaries and a lot of people, it's kind of a little bit confusing. At first it looked pretty easy. It says, here it says, and lead us not into temptation. Well, the word temptation has, has two meanings. The, the Greek word that's used has two meanings. One meaning is the enticement to evil. So Lord, don't lead us into an enticement to evil. Well, it can't be that because of James 1.13. James 1.13 says this. He says, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So in James 1.13, it is telling us that, you know, God cannot tempt with evil. So they can't mean that. Why would God lead you into temptation? That's not what he's going to do. He can't do that. He's not going to lead you into, into sin. But the second definition of that is a test or trial of the validity of your faith. A test or trial of the validity of your faith. You know, you never really know how, some, how strong something is until it's tested. I, I know we hate tests in school, but you can't really determine if you know the material unless you take a test. Well, there are tests and trials that we have. And those tests and trials come to determine the validity of our faith. But there are times when we go through these trials that they can sometimes lead us to temptations and temptations to do the wrong thing. So God doesn't tempt you to do evil, but he does allow you to go through trials which are necessary to validate your faith and to develop your character. James 1 verses 2 through 4 talks about the value of trials. He says here, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, listen, when those tests and trials come, you need to count it a joy because it's going to make you stronger. It's going to reveal what's in your heart. It's going to make stronger your moral character. All right, so now here we are. In this verse, it says, I'm praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Now, if it doesn't mean don't lead us into sin, Am I saying, don't lead me into trials? Well, then I read James and it says, trials are good. So why should I tell God, don't lead me into trials? Most as you look at this, see that what we're praying in this prayer is that God, I don't want you, I want you to deliver me from overpowering trials and temptations. 
Lord, when it says don't lead us into temptation, Lord, don't lead me into something that would be overpowering, not some trial that is too severe of a test. Deliver me from these overpowering trials and temptations. One looked at it a little different. He says, when you're praying, God, don't lead me into temptation, take the negative of that or flip it around and say, God, lead me into places of righteousness. And so when I'm saying, Lord, don't lead me into temptation. Lord, please, today, don't lead me into any trial that would be so overwhelming that I would fail. And Lord, I would pray at that same time that you would lead me in paths of righteousness. You would lead me to places to where I could experience righteousness. And it says, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some of your translations have the evil one, which would be Satan. And, and that translation is, is good, either one of those, those translations. Deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one. So in our prayer, we're praying for protection. We're praying for a spiritual hedge of protection. Deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from Satan. Build a hedge of protection around me, Lord. Build a hedge of protection around my family. Build a hedge of protection around this church. And so deliver us from the evil one. Don't let him get a victory over there. Lord, I'm praying for protection. So just think about those three needs. You're praying for his provisions. You're praying about personal relationships. And then you're praying for protection. But the very last thing of all of this prayer would be sort of in the footnote. And that is praise for the greatness and majesty of God. You see at the very end when it says, uh, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, it is not listed in the earliest of manuscripts. In fact, most people believe it was added in the late second century. And they believe that uh, there, were, there were those believers who when they would recite the Lord's Prayer, they didn't just end it with um, uh, lead us not in temptation, uh, but deliver us from evil. They then added this doxology. And this doxology is scripturally based. There are variations of this all throughout Scripture. Everything in there is true uh, that it says. And so what they did is just added that to the prayer. Most likely Jesus did not put that in his prayer. But whenever you're praying the Lord's Prayer, it's a beautiful doxology to add to it. And it's all truth. All truth is found in Scripture. Thine is the power, the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And what it does is it begins to talk to us about how God is sovereign and God is powerful and God is majestic and God is eternal. And it's, it gives us a great picture of that when you're starting your prayers, you begin it with praise and you close it with praise. It's bookends of praise. You praise the person of God. And then as you walk through and you pray for his plans, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you move into your needs where you're praying for provisions and then about your personal relationships and you're praying for protection. And then at the very end, you close with another time of praise because he is sovereign. He is majestic. He is all-powerful. And he is eternal. The model prayer. It's something that all of us can look at and take Jesus' words and say, this is how we are to pray. And when you pray it, we want to live it out. And today we got an opportunity as we get ready to close our service to move into the Lord's Supper. I can't think of a better way for us to close out this service as we think about all that we've just talked about in the Lord's Prayer. And we're looking at, at who God is and how wonderful he is. And we're looking about the provisions that he gives us. And when we come here for the Lord's table, we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ 
died for our sins and was raised from the dead and that he has conquered sin and conquered death and that when we make this decision for him, we become a part of his family. And he says that every time that we are to partake of this Lord's Supper, that we are to do this in remembrance of him. And so I'm going to ask uh, those that are ushers at this time that are going to help us to distribute the elements to come forward and begin to, to get in your place. And as they get in, your, in their place, let me just share a couple words about, about the Lord's Supper. Uh, as we offer this Lord's Supper, it is, it is an ordinance of the church, and it is something that is to be, that is to be done for those that are believers. And if you're here today and, and you've never made a decision for Christ and you said, you know, I'm just here in this service, I, I've never really understood what it means to be a Christian, then as we go through and they pass this plate, if you'll just take it and just go on and pass, don't remove any of the elements from there and just listen to the words of the song that we'll be singing and just let it be a reflective time. And my hope is that the message would speak to your heart and that today you would want to make that decision to receive Christ. There are others of you that are here that you are believers and, uh, and you're part of God's family, but you may not be a member of this church. Well, we have what we call open communion. That is that, man, you're part of the body of Christ. We'd love for you to be able to partake of this. So we encourage you to partake of this. And uh, as the word says, that whenever we partake of this, we're to do some introspection of our own lives. And may we take the Lord's prayer Think back through those words. Think back through the challenges of it. And each one of us look at our lives and say, God, just put the searchlight inside of me. And whatever areas are that are impure, that are wrong with you, let's make those right. Let's make those right. And so in these next few moments, let it be a very special time between you and the Lord as we prepare our hearts for the partaking of the elements. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the fact that your son came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and that in your power you raised him from the dead. You gave us a hope. You gave us a hope that that debt of sin that we have can be forgiven, and we thank you for that. And I pray that as we remember the price that was paid on Calvary, then as we partake of these elements, that we'll have great thanksgiving in our hearts. At the same time, we ask that our hearts be wide open for you to speak to our hearts and to challenge us and to change us in any way that you would deem necessary. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. On that night when uh, Jesus was having a supper with the disciples, the song really became a reality when he talks about Christ have mercy. God was getting ready to share, Jesus was getting ready to share with his disciples about the act of mercy that was getting ready to take place as he was going to the cross and he was going to die for our sins. And so in the midst of the meal, he took a couple of the elements of the meal to give them really a new meaning. And he took the bread and he broke the bread. And he told them, he says, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. says that throughout that meal, they continued their meal, and as they got near the end of the meal, he then took the cup. And when he took the cup, he told them this cup represented um, his blood, 
which would be shed for the forgiveness of sins and would represent a new covenant between God and man. And they were to take it and to drink all of it. Following the meal, it says they, they went out to the Mount of Olives and they, and they, they sang a song and then they went out. And, and shortly after that, then the soldiers came and they arrested Jesus. And they arrested him. And then they beat him and they put him in a false trial. And then that next morning, they crucified him. And he was suspended between heaven and earth on a cross for six hours until he died. And then they took his body down and, and placed it in the tomb. But then three days later, through the power of God, he raised him from the dead. And he gives us that hope for eternal life and that joy. And because of all that, uh, that he has given us, it's why that when we have worship services, we have a time of offering. We have an offering because we like to come and to bring something, bring something in which we have been blessed with to be able to then give back to him. And so at this point of our service, uh, we're going to move into our time of offering. And I'm going to ask our ushers if they will prepare for this. And as they're preparing, uh, early in the service, I mentioned to you a tear-off to where we asked you to put prayer requests and to fill that information. If you could take that tear-off and just pass it to your right. Uh, and if you're on the end of the pew, just hold on to it. And these ushers will come and they will gather those uh, together. And so as we get ready to take this opportunity to give back uh, to God who's given us so much, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for the gift of your Son, our Savior. And then, Lord, I thank you that you have entrusted with us uh, financial uh, resources and that through those financial resources, what a joy and a privilege it is to be able to take a portion of those and just to give back to you and to say thank you. And so, Lord, that is our gift, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.